welcome to the MIT Press Podcast. In light of the protests that have been taking place around the world in response to police violence, it's key that we all take the time to question how we can use what agency we have to dismantle white supremacy. We decided that we had to use this platform to highlight the voices of academics and writers whose work clarifies and analyzes the subjects of race, police, and violence. With this in mind, I reached out to Jackie Wang, author of Carceral Capitalism. Published by Semiotext in February of 2018, Jackie's book is made up of essays on policing, prisons, and the economics of racism. At a time when things are happening so quickly, historical context and analysis is more important than ever. When I contacted Jackie, she informed me that due to personal circumstances, she would be unable to read from the book herself, but gave her blessing to invite someone else to read from her work instead. Sparked by a line in the introduction to the book regarding the politicization of how we understand friendship, I asked a close friend of mine, Connor Rose, to read from the book. He's someone with personal and academic grounding in these issues as a young black man who studies accountancy and economics. The numerous conversations we've shared as friends for almost a decade has shaped my politics immensely, so it felt right that we collaborated on this. The text that you're about to hear read was taken from the introduction to the book, and it offers insight into the political roots of Black Lives Matter, as well as some of the economic structures of racism. I encourage listeners to use the links in the description to donate to organisations and support what's going on. And I'd like to once again say thank you to Jackie Wang for letting us do this. This project began before it began, more than five years ago, when I wrote an essay entitled Against Innocence. That was before the Black Lives Matter movement, during a time when taking an anti-police position was often considered scandalous, even in some leftist circles. It was a period of frenetic political activity and thinking, inspired by the movement of the squares, by Occupy Wall Street and the global wave of revolts. Many of us partook in intense collective experiments with each other, by cooking and sharing food, starting art and mental health collectives, supporting prisoners, supporting queer and people of colour intentional communities, bootlegging and circulating inspiring essays, occupying buildings and public spaces, politicising our understanding of friendship and engaging in other cooperative activities. We suffused desire into our practices and moved politics beyond the compartmentalised realm of organising and into our daily lives. These were political experiments, yes, but also experiments in creating modes and rhythms of being and material social networks rooted in reproduction of everyday life. The event that launched the global wave of uprisings and politicised many people of my generation was the Arab Spring and the Occupy movement that followed it. But what began as the Arab Spring has, in the intervening years, devolved into chaos and become the proscenium in which global powers use proxy warfare to flaunt their military might. A moment of possibility has since turned into six years of civil war in Syria. The economic and political implosion of Egypt, Libya, Yemen and other nations. The revival of Russia as a global military power and a so-called refugee crisis that has sparked reactionary movements across Europe and is galvanising support for the fascist, neo-fascist, populist and ultra-racist right-wing parties. At the time, it seemed possible to topple governments by assembling in squares, to collectively plan our futures through the people's mic and consensus decision-making processes. Some believe the revolution could be carried out through the Twitter hive mind and calls to action issued on Facebook. 
when the Occupy movement took off in the United States, analysis of the structural role of the police to maintain white supremacy and capitalism were pushed to the margins. Many argued that the police were friends of the protesters, that they were oppressed as workers and thus should not be treated with hostility or suspicion. But everywhere across the United States, it was the police who evicted the Occupy encampments, often raiding the makeshift camps in the middle of the night, demonstrating once again that as soon as the status quo is threatened, the police will be used as an instrument of political repression. So much has changed since that moment, in both positive and negative directions, for the world is always moving in multiple directions. Since I began this project, I have watched the birth of the Black Lives Matter movement, which has radically transformed how racism is conceived and contested. While attending a packed panel at Harvard University on Ferguson and the history of the civil rights movement, the comments of the panellists and the audience made me aware of just how much has changed in a little over half a decade. I knew that the discursive terrain had been completely transformed when I listened to the rapper Tef Poe tell the Harvard audience to great applause that flipping cop cars was a legitimate form of protest. Mainstream magazines and news outlets such as Time, Rolling Stone, MTV News and The Nation also ran stories validating rioting as a protest tactic in the wake of riots and police killings that took place in 2014-15 to in Baltimore, Ferguson, Oakland and other cities. Before the Ferguson moment and the Black Lives Matter movement, I felt compelled to write Against Innocence as a response to what I felt was a discursive and political impasse. That is, liberalism's stranglehold on how we understand both the nature of racism and which tactics are legitimate to counter-racism. As someone who has extensively researched and is personally affected by mass incarceration, I know that in the United States, blackness is associated with guilt and criminality. Though this conflation has been around for more than a century, as Khalil Mohammed notes in The Condemnation of Blackness in the 1960s to 90s, Criminologists, politicians and policymakers work vigorously to consolidate the image of the black criminal in the public imagination. For this reason, it seemed counterproductive to construct an anti-racist politics founded on a moral framework of innocence, whereby only respectable subjects are considered proper symbols of the contestation of racism. Such a political framework would ensure that forms of structural and state violence against those who are not proper victims would remain illegible and fail to register as a scandal. The a priori association of blackness with guilt and criminality comforts white America by enabling people to believe that black Americans are deserving of their condition and that the livelihoods of whites are in no way bound up with black immiseration. At the same time, the framework of innocence which fetishises passivity delegitimises militant forms of revolt that may be more potent in actually challenging racism. Though the liberal anti-racist framework has not been completely dismantled, I feel that the new younger generation of activists are not so easily beguiled by the political establishment and the promise of state recognition. Unlike those who just a few years ago quixotically held the belief that it was possible for revolutionaries and the police to be bedfellows. Not only did the Ferguson uprising make the public acutely aware of just how constitutively racist the police are, it also attracted enough attention that the Department of Justice launched an investigation into the practices of the Ferguson Police Department. 
The investigation ultimately revealed the existence of a system of municipal plunder involving the city financial manager, John Shaw, and the police department. The Department of Justice discovered that not only were the police killing and harassing residents, but the city was also using the police and the courts to generate revenue to balance the municipal budget. After reading the report and researching this topic, I began to pay closer attention to the news stories related to municipal and state finance. I realised that across the country, municipalities and states were increasingly dependent on the use of coercive, extractive mechanisms that squeezed the people on the bottom for cash. What the fuck was going on? For me, the methods of extraction mark a turning point in what has been called the neoliberal era. Neoliberalism is defined as, quote, a set of policies and ideological tenets that include the privatisation of public assets, the deregulation or elimination of state services, macroeconomic stabilisation and the discouragement of Keynesian policies, trade liberalisation and financial deregulation, a discursive emphasis on neutral, efficient and technical solutions to social problems and the use of market language to legitimise new norms and to neutralise opposition, end quote. Nearly half a century of economic policies that have eroded the power of labour and enabled a high degree of capital mobility has not only resulted in a fiscal race to the bottom that has gutted the tax base in this country, but also has transformed the nature of governance itself. If to borrow Wolfgang Street's taxonomy, the tax state, i.e. post-war Keynesian welfare state, has evolved into the debt state which authorises austerity. Then what we are witnessing now is the emergence of a predatory state which functions to modulate the dysfunctional aspects of neoliberalism and in particular the realisation problem in the financial sector. Modern monetary theorists assert that governments with fiat currency systems which the US became when President Richard Nixon took the country off the gold standard in 1971 do not need to raise revenue to cover government spending, as they are monopoly issuers of their respective currencies. However, this is not true for the US states and the municipalities, as they are unable to issue the US currency, nor can they function by arbitrarily raising their debt ceilings. States and municipalities must either issue bonds and continue to make payment on their debts, or find a way to raise revenue. Although states cannot file for bankruptcy, Municipalities can file under Chapter 9, Title 11 of the United States Code. Depending on the laws of the given state, some municipalities can use bankruptcy to discharge their pension obligations. During the Detroit bankruptcy, the bankruptcy lawyer Timothy M. Whitbot appeared on television touting the widely held false myth that ordinary people own the public debt and thus investors should be given equal priority to pensioners. In reality, between 1989 and 2013, household holdings of municipal bonds have fallen from 4.6% to 2.4%, and in 2013, the top 0.5% of the wealthiest households owned 42% of all municipal bonds. The question of who owns the public debt is a political one that enables the financial sector and the wealthiest Americans to assert their interests by claiming that they are everyone's interests. As the public debt is financialised and the money to cover government expenditures is increasingly supplied by the financial sector, government bodies become more accountable to creditors than to the public. Over time, this has a de-democratising effect.
In short, the outcome of neoliberal policies and federal fiscal retrenchment has been not only privatisation and austerity, but predatory and parasitic governance on the state and local levels and indebtedness as a generalised social condition. Increasingly, local governments are engaging in risky forms of borrowing, making high-risk financial bets with public money. When these deals go south, as many of them did in the wake of the 2008 financial crisis, governments have sought to balance the budget on the backs of the poor, the unemployed and black and brown people. Since tax codes are designed such that corporations and wealthy people can easily evade taxation, when the housing market collapsed in 2008, local governments lost a substantial portion of their key revenue streams, property taxes. Recently, the city of Miami, Florida sued the Bank of America for indirect financial harm caused by discriminatory subprime mortgage lending, which targeted black and Latinx borrowers for high-interest loans that were designed so that the borrowers would default. By examining recent political developments, we can uncover the interrelatedness of the economy, policing and municipal finance. The collapse of the housing market created a global economic crisis, which led to the loss of revenue for municipalities, which catalyzed the creation of municipal fiscal schemes that used the police to plunder residents. But given that local law enforcement officers are bankrolled by municipalities, wouldn't their existence be threatened by the new fiscal situation? Although under neoliberalism, the power of labour has been weakened in both the public and private sector, Police continue to operate with bloated budgets and collect generous pensions. Indeed, in recent years, police unions and sometimes firefighter and prison guard unions are among a meagre handful of unions that have actually fared well. When Wisconsin Governor Scott Walker rewrote state labour laws and dismantled collective bargaining rights, he protected police and firefighter unions and excluded them from state pension cuts. Although financing these security apparatus remains a priority of local governments, revenue shortfalls still put pressure on local police departments. In the Police Chief magazine, Paul Lacamere, a commander from the West Covina Police Department, opens an article about using police to generate new revenue streams, with the observation that a downward spiral in California city government's revenue streams has occurred for the past five years, starting with the housing bubble that burst property tax returns by 40%. He goes on to note that the common reaction to a budget crisis is reducing personnel and cutting services. The focus of this article is to provide police agencies with an alternative to personnel and service reductions. In 2008, experts in the field of city government, business, real estate and entrepreneurship met to identify possible new income streams that could be initiated by law enforcement. The ideas include, quote, fees for sex offenders registering in given jurisdiction, city toll companies, Fine increases by 50%, paper call policing, vacation house check fees, public hours at police firing range for a fee, police department run online traffic school for minor traffic infractions, department-based security service including home checks and monitoring of security cameras by the police department, a designated business to clean biological crime scenes, state and court fees for all convicted felons returning to the community allowing agency name to be used for advertisement and branding, 
triple driving under the influence fines by the court, residence fee similar to a utility tax, tax or fee on all alcohol sold in the city, tax or fee on all ammunition sold in the city, public safety fees on all new development in the city, 911 fee per use, police department website with business advertisement for support, selling ride-along to the public, and police department run firearm safety classes, end quote. Many of the ideas offered above, which represent a move towards offender funding, policing and punishment, incentivise the hyper-exploitation of residents by the police by directly monetizing policing or by using fees and fines to squeeze money out of people who come into contact with the police. Places such as Ramsey County, Minnesota, have recently come under fire for charging a range of fees for arrest, regardless of a guilty conviction. As this article suggests, in the new fiscal environment, police are increasingly taking on the role of directly generating revenue, which ensures that their departments do not suffer extensive budget cuts and layoffs when there are municipal revenue shortfalls. In other words, their survival and expansion becomes bound up with their capacity to use the police power and the court system to loot residents. As we have seen with the explosion of prisons in the latter half of the 20th century, which occurred alongside market liberalisation, the supposed scaling back of the government does not necessarily lead to the shrinking of police, prisons and military spending. Prisons and law enforcement may actually grow when the ideology of small government is hegemonic because the maintenance of law and order is considered the proper domain of government. For Bernard E. Hardcourt, neoliberal penalty is rooted in the assumption of government legitimacy and competence in the penal area and, on the other hand, the presumption that the government should not play a role elsewhere. However, the collapse of the tax state owing to neoliberalisation has created a situation where the livelihoods of local government bodies are increasingly tied to the predatory fiscal structures that foster looting. Although it's important to analyse the economic conditions that have been driving contemporary police practices, an analysis of prisons and police that solely focuses on the political economy of punishment would be incomplete. There are gratuitous forms of racialized state violence that are irrational from a market perspective. From an economic perspective, the new sentencing regime that emerged alongside the war on drugs, such as the three strikes law for drug possession, makes little economic sense. Why waste an exorbitant amount of public money on incarcerating non-violent offenders, sometimes for life? If you analyse the situation from the perspective of the rural white Americans who benefit from the creation of prison jobs that accompanies the expansion of prisons, then there is an economic rationale. However, this lens in itself is not sufficient to explain many factors of mass incarceration, including the mandatory juvenile life without parole sentence regime that was codified in law in the mid-1990s. In my essay, Packing Guns Instead of Lunches, I examine the interplay between criminological discourse, biopolitics and law. I wrote this essay on the criminalisation of juveniles right before Black Lives Matter activists disrupted a rally for Hillary Clinton. 
the young activist Ashley Williams interrupted a fundraising event for Clinton in Charlestown, South Carolina, and asked why Clinton used the term super predator in the 1996 speech to rally support for Bill Clinton's 1994 crime bill. While the law and order political climate of the 1980s and 90s made it difficult for politicians to get elected without espousing a tough on crime stance, the political climate has changed such that the exposure of Clinton's past use of super predator rhetoric was an embarrassment during her recent presidential campaign. On the issue of mass incarceration and punishment, it seemed for a moment that the tide was turning. Support for the war on drugs had been waning and drug use had been reframed as a public health issue, perhaps because opiate drug addiction had made incursions into white America. Given the structural barriers that prevent white Americans from feeling empathy towards black Americans, it's not surprising that the draconian policies that criminalise drug use are being scaled back now that the drug use is also a white problem. Prior to the election of Donald Trump, it also appears that the US has become less punitive. Not long before Trump's election, the Pew Research Center released a report stating that public support for the death penalty was the lowest it's been for 45 years. In 1994, it was 80%. In 2016, it was around 49%. Then, during the 2016 election, we saw a dramatic pivot towards punishment. All three states with death penalty referendums voted in favour of capital punishment. California and Oklahoma voted to keep the death penalty on the books, while Nebraska voted to reinstate it. This was not surprising given that the Pew survey also found that men and white people were more likely to support capital punishment. Also, the demographic that rallied by Trump. With the election of Trump and the selection of Senator Jeff Sessions for the position of Attorney General, the situation does not look promising for those of us who have been fighting for the abolition of prisons and police. During the inaugural address, President Trump, drawing on the tough-on-crime political speak of yore, painted a bleak picture of American cities, our streets, he claimed, are ravaged by crime, carnage and lawlessness. He vowed to support the law enforcement and revive America. Overall, his rhetoric suggested that under his presidency, there would be a reinvigoration of the war on crime and the war on drugs. The day I posted my essay on juvenile life without parole sentences on my blog, the US Supreme Court determined in the court case Montgomery versus Louisiana that the decision reached in Miller versus Alabama, which rendered mandatory juvenile without parole unconstitutional, applies retrospectively. These Supreme Court rulings still leave open the possibility of judges sentencing juvenile offenders to life without parole. They merely stipulate that judges must consider the juvenile status of the offender during sentencing. However, these rulings have created a legal grey area that has led many states to grant resentencing hearings to those given juvenile life without parole, including my older brother. It is too soon to tell if these Supreme Court decisions will result in reduced sentences for juvenile offenders. In Florida, where my brother is currently in prison, many of those serving juvenile life without parole sentences have been resentenced to life. My brother took a deal for 40 years. For a moment, it seemed possible to imagine that every discretionary juvenile life without parole sentence would be abolished by the Supreme Court. 
But now, with the newly conservative federal Supreme Court, this possibility is quickly receding. Without a revolution or mass street movement, even the nominal legislative progress that has been made to scale back mass incarceration is at risk of being undone.